Today's episode is sponsored by Kin Soul Studio, creators of Alchemia, Destiny's Recipe. In their upcoming game, Steep Seers, you join your fellow prophets of the future as you race to raise the most belief from others by seeing visions in the steam of various teas. Collect your ingredients, store them in your teapot, and pour out visions to ensure your race's survival. Steep Seers is available at a special pre-order price on their Backer Kit store. Just go to steepseers.backerkit.com before May 1st to get yourself a copy of this tea brewing vision crafting adventure. That's S-T-E-E-P-S-E-E-R-S dot backerkit.com. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab today. Talking about history, talking about historical games, historically accurate games that are also really fun. Not necessarily something uh, you hear all the time, but we got Tom Butler on the show from Green Feet Games. Tom, welcome to the show. I appreciate it very much. Glad to be here, Gabe. Thank you so much. Yeah, man. Glad to have you. You know, historical games, it's an interesting thing. Historical games have been around basically forever. Like, I mean, there's probably thousands of years ago people playing these like historical war games and, you know, basing their ideas on, on historical battles and things like that. And you've got some really interesting historically accurate historical like time period kind of games as well that have been doing really well, have been reviewed very highly by the Dice Tower. So congrats on that. So I'm excited to kind of get your ideas, your, your inspirations, your, your research processes, all that kind of thing for these types of games. But before we do that, who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that good stuff. I appreciate that, Gabe. Yeah, uh, again, it's Tom Butler, and I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, so a little bit of that southern draw, so apologize up front. (laughs) But uh, during the day, I'm an officer that serves in the the United States Air Force, wearing the cloth of our nation of the United States. And at night, I'm basically a publisher of Greenfeet Games, board game company. Um, I'm a designer of two games, as you mentioned. One is the uh, Pirate Republic, which is a one-to-five player 4X game, uh, very heavy into your Amerithrash genre. And then a Patriots and Redcoats, which is a four to ten player game, social deduction party game that's about the uh, America's war for independence. So I, I would definitely say I'm a full time officer and also a, a hobbyist that actually runs a business on the side. Yeah, awesome. And what really brought you into the hobby of game design? Like, what what kind of made you want to scratch that itch? Yeah, well, I think you know a lot of uh, hopefully a lot of listeners out there uh, can relate, but. Uh, some of us get into game design uh, for for many different reasons. Uh, mine happens to be if if many of you have seen uh, uh, the movie The Christmas Story, there's a there's a part in there where uh, Schwartz gets uh, triple dog dared to basically put his tongue on a pole uh, during during the dead winter, and have, unfortunately his tongue gets stuck to the pole. And uh, and I, I relate to that because my daughters pretty much gave me the triple dog dare, and they said, Dad, you know you're playing these games night after night, and you know, you're starting to accessorize some of these game pieces. You're changing the rules around. You're painting some of the minis. And uh, finally, uh, you know, my, my girls just called me out and they said, Dad, you know, this game is less than 50% of what the original game is that you bought and what we're playing. So why don't you just go ahead and make your own game? And so, uh, so like many, um, Gabe, I went through that process of saying, you know what, I, I, I think I want to get into game design. And, uh, you know, I, I give a lot of that credit to, you know, two trusty guardian angels. I think you've had one or both of them on your show, Jamie Stegmeyer and James Mathis, because uh, I turned to them just for a second because 
they're problem solvers of kind of the greatest kind uh, that you have out there in the industry uh, because they, they kind of answer the question for you. They say, look, here's how you make a board game. Okay. But, but what do you do when you make it and how do you run a board game business and how do you launch a Kickstarter? Um, and, and I think, uh, I think to answer that question, it comes down to, you have to have people in this industry that are willing to, I like to say, light other candles and, uh, they do a great job at that. And so, um, I think the biggest thing is that, uh, they give us that sense of belief because, you know, many times, Gabe, we just perform to our maximum level, uh, and that maximum level is our belief and, uh, they make you better believers in yourself. So, yeah, very cool. So let's uh, let's just get a good working definition. Like when we're talking about historical games, historically accurate games, what are we really talking about, or at least as far as your opinion goes? Yeah. So you know, I mean, I think you know that that concept of history or or historical games, you have to be careful because some people think, well, you know, let's go down the simulation route, and other people go, well, you know, I don't know if we want to go to the simulation route. I actually just want to make a game. And for the audience here, you know that. The history part that we're after is is this is this concept of are there people or are there at times in our history that are worthy of our admiration and is there something that we can get after to explain why that's worthy of our admiration? I mean, if you look at uh, the story, just the importance of the story, are we talking about you know the great empires of China, maybe Rome, maybe Alexander the Great, Marco Polo, uh, how to defeat the Spanish Armada? I mean, all of those historical events, I think we can all name a board game about. Um, You've got uh, the romance in the royal courts, Japanese samurais, uh, spycraft during the American Revolution, uh, you know, the the prior tragedies of two world wars, uh, all those things uh, and all of those um, actions and things that have occurred in our history uh, are are pretty much studied. And um, because they're studied, they help us understand why we live the way we are living and basically why we are where we are as a species. And I think, uh, you know, if you look at the history and the importance to board games, it's kind of the story of, of mankind. Uh, you, you got a lot of ways to learn history. I mean, some of us learned it through atlases, visiting museums, reading autobiographies, uh, textbooks, uh, going to historical sites, or you can learn history by playing a board game. So all those things that we, we talked about, um, you can bring out uh, and get after those concepts in a board game. And so uh, what I believe is important is that uh, understanding and capturing th- those moments of history um, that need to be or should be remembered. Yeah, and I love that concept. Things worth remembering, right? Going back throughout history and saying, okay, here's some really cool moments. Here's some really cool battles or, or people, you know, different things happening, whether it, it was, and honestly, I guess you could think through like trading in the Mediterranean, like that was a very historical time. That's a real lifetime period that's turned into some really good games. There's tons of war games. I think a lot of people, you know, they, they think, oh, historical games, that must be a war game. Well, no, like that, that could be anything it's just throughout history and taking something real and turning it into game mecha- mechanisms and something fun. And so like, why do you think people are just so drawn to these games? I mean, they're like you're saying, there's so many games that you could easily name off the top of your head about Rome, about China, about the Mediterranean, all these things. Like, what is it that just draws us into these themes and these types of games? Well, I mean, uh, there's a couple of good books out there that the names escape me now, but you know, a lot of times, uh, if you look at the history of games, I mean, they date back to our, our ancient human past. They've been a part of all cultures, and they're one of the oldest forms of human social interaction. I mean, we had games before we had text in a lot of 
and the written word uh, in a lot of a lot of cases. And so I think it's important because they do really capture that worldview of whatever that culture was at the time. And we look at that and they and, and you try to pass on that same worldview maybe to that future generation. So you've got this a little bit of social bonding. You've got these teaching tools and then just these they could also be these markers of social status. Um, you know, it, it's interesting you say that because, yeah, you know, when I was researching just game design in general, you know, I didn't realize how much the dice or just the die <laughs> has been around, whether that was carved in bone and plastic or uh, was dots nothing more than just this determinate uh, chancy uh, tool or, or that we use or a component that's been around forever. I mean, and you still find it, it's interesting if uh, those viewers out there that maybe they've been to Vegas or they've been to casinos, but if you look at the game of craps as an example, that's that's one of the only games out there where the odds are actually in your favor for the gambler, but the game's still there. Uh, we're, we're, so we're fascinated with, I think, um, the history of games because it, it it tells us a little bit about our culture and those cultures of the past. Yeah. So why do you think people are drawn to historical themes, like historical games in particular? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, if, if you look at the, I think if, if you look at like the past, uh, you know, a hundred years, not, not to talk too much about our, the, uh, the education system, but you know, if you look at how maybe history was taught, uh, it was really taught. I mean, the way I grew up, it was definitely memorization. It was regurgitation. It was basically, here's a fact and memorize this fact. And it kind of just became this, this drudgery of just memorizing dates and dead people. And that doesn't really sound very appealing. Um, And so I think what separates that from memorization is, is learning. And so folks are always, whether they like it or not, they're learning something. And if you can instill learning something within your game, uh, and something that's basically factual and relevant, I think that's where board games come in. And I think that's, that's, the, that's the draw and that's the appeal because for whether you're, you want to be transported to that time period, um, make no mistake about it. Folks still want to have fun. They still want to make sure that at the end of the day, they've, they played something that was fun, but, but they didn't even realize that they were actually learning about history. And, and that might generate more questions of, wow, I didn't really even know we had that back in that time period. Um, and, and I think it's that curiosity mixed in with that motivation, um, which is why, why his, history is important when it comes to game design and, and people are maybe drawn to those historical type of games. Yeah, definitely. And it's interesting, just that whole, whole thought of like making history fun. Cause like you're saying in school, so often it's not, it's not taught in a super fun way. Usually it's just kind of dry, you know, here's what happened, memorize it, we'll test you on it. You'll forget it the next day and repeat over and over again. And I think also history has this, this very cool, very, very interesting mystique about it. Like when, when we look back, a lot of times we kind of gloss over a lot of the ugly parts and we only remember some of the great things about, you know, what was going on in the Renaissance, what was going on in ancient Rome. Like there was some really awful, tragic, t- wretched, terrible things happening too, but we tend to not want to think about those so much. And I feel like the games typically kind of ignore that stuff too. And so we can kind of play the best parts of history as well. And so that's, I think that's another thing that, that kind of draws people they, they, you know, Gabe, they, they definitely pull you in. You know, when uh, uh, when I was researching uh, Patriots and Redcoats a little bit, you know, I, I came to find out Benjamin Franklin, one of our founding fathers, that he actually set up the Committee of Secret uh, uh, secret Correspondence, which is basically the forerunner to our modern day CIA. And, and I think that's, that's, that's fascinating. But I, I think even more fascinating is I think we love stories and we want stories that, that pull us in now more than ever. 
Um, you know, we can talk a little bit about how you stay unplugged as a society as everything's drawing us in to stay more plugged in. But I think it's that excitement we're looking for right now, all brought in and, and, and rolled into why the, the board game movement is, is basically taken off. But we're looking for these stories that maybe we can be part of. I mean, that's kind of the highlight of humanity is, uh, as you mentioned, struggling with these themes that we can relate to, like right and wrong or good and bad. You know, I, I'm sure you got some Star Wars fans out there. Um, and, you know, like what if like Star Wars was actually like taught in in in, in the classroom? Uh, you know, and, 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 I, and I just look at, you know, as my game design process, I look at what that would have looked like if a teacher was teaching it. And what would that look like if I was trying to bring that out in a board game? And, and you know, and, and maybe the way that we would teach it today is some dates and some memorization. But, you know, game designers, I would say, they, they go, wait a minute. No, no, no. This is Star Wars A New Hope. This is 30 years of war in the world history course. It's going to basically uh, be this chapter maybe called the Galactic Empire, you know. And it's like, hey, you've got this growing number of planets. The rebels are fighting. They're trying to rein in the rebels. The Empire builds a space station. And in the show of power, you know, the, the Empire destroys planet Alderaan. I mean, that that draws you in <laughs> versus basically just looking at the date that says on this date, planet Alderaan was destroyed. Um, because it, that that narrative is uh, is pretty much, I think, what, what we're after, because it helps us struggle with those themes. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, story is one of the main things that draws people into anything. And I feel like with historical games, you can also have some fun sometimes. If you're not super concerned about the accuracy necessarily, if you want to kind of take down the, the more fictional route, you can do things that, that take a known story, a well-known story, and then twist it a little bit. So it's World War II and Cthulhu. It's World War II and zombies yeah. or something like that, right? Yeah. It's it's the, the trading in the Mediterranean, but also this thing over here as well. And so you take something that's well-known that people have seen forever and you go, yeah, but there's this twist. There's this interesting other dynamic happening at the same time. And I feel like there's so just billions and trillions of untold stories just because you can kind of take, you know, take things from different perspectives, different angles. Absolutely. Well, come on, let's talk more about your, some of the examples, some of the inspirations uh, for you uh, that, that kind of led you to designing two historical games. Like what were some of the games or movies or things that, that really just kind of spurred you on to, to make these, these kinds of things? Well, there was, um, you know, basically at the time there was, uh, for any of the folks that uh, have a star subscription, there was a series that came out called uh, uh, Black Sails, if I'm not mistaken. And it, it went really deep into uh, the, the genre of piracy. And it, it, there, there were a lot of themes that were pulled out of that, um, that movie and, or, or really that, that miniseries. And I think if you, if you look at um, some of the history of piracy, uh, you know, you, uh, unfortunately, you normally get two trains of thought. You know, uh, the first train of thought, whether that's good or bad, is, hey, uh, why are we talking about pirates? They were, you know, thieves and murderers, as an example. Uh, but, but the other train of thought is, is did, do we know much about what piracy was in the context of that time period? And, and so, you know, I, I, I sit there and, and I struggle with this because what we're trying to bring out in these games are, are maybe some, some concepts of, of that time period that maybe no one knew about. Or, or, or maybe basically uh, by bringing out uh, that information, we can teach people about um, the fact that if you look at some of our, our uh Pirates today, uh, with uh, mod uh, or excuse me, potter pirates of the uh, golden age. You sit there and you go, you know, did did people even realize that they they were the first ones to introduce things like 
uh, certain forms of democracy. I mean, it, it was one of the first times in our history uh, where basically that pirate captain, he was voted on the island or off the island. I mean, he basically, he, he, and he was voted by his peer or his crew. And so you have these, these crew that basically said, you know, you're not going to have all the power. We're going to vote for the power and we're going to give that to you. And that was a concept that, that was new um, at the time. And if you, you know, if you look at the quartermaster, the quartermaster was kind of like the judge or you call him the, the judicial branch today. He was the one that basically said, you know, knock it off or this makes sense or we're going to go in this direction or we're not going to go in this direction. And then um, and then, of course, you, you know, you basically had the crew and the crew was the ones that were voting whether or not um, what they were going to do, uh, whether they were going to take out this next ship was something that that was worth worth doing. Yeah, that's super interesting. And, and another thing about history, the more like the deeper you go into these things, the more cool stuff you find that you never knew that no one in history class ever told you, uh, you know, while you were memorizing dates and names, you know, maybe, maybe they could have uh, spent a little more time about democracy amongst pirates. Like it just seems like something that would have made kids more excited it, about history. You know, it's interesting, Gabe, because you say that it's like, you know, you take the pirate codes, uh, pirate codes were revolutionary. They basically said, Hey, let's take this power away from any one man. And, and we're going to place it in the hands of the majority. Uh, you know, the ship captain was elected just like our president, as I said. You know, these pirate assemblies were comparable to Congress. Quartermaster resembled a judge and settling disputes. And, and then what we don't realize is that one of the reasons that, uh, you know, Britain was even able to hold on to our American colonies so long is because pirates were decimating the Spanish so badly that Spain had to give up on part of the American empire. So it's this, it's this narrative style. Like if we can get after maybe teaching that narrative style... I mean, I had folks playing the Pirate Republic. They, they said things like, you know, I've never heard of the Darien scheme or I didn't realize like the entire um, first method of globalization was basically the, the, the treasure fleets. It's the first time that we actually basically had uh, a form of commerce that stretched the entire globe. And it was the treasure fleets that did that. And so it, it always amazes me um, when I get emails like I, I got an email just pretty much a about four weeks ago from a Juan Ponce Vasquez. And he's a historian at the University of Alabama. And he's specializing in Latin America, Caribbean history. And he says, Tom, look, I'm reaching out to you because I want to use your game in my classroom. <laughs> I'm creating a course called The Golden Age of Piracy in History and Popular Culture. And I think your game gets after understanding some important decisions that pirates had to make at the time, the impact that they had uh, on the trade, their experiences, and they can understand more of those situations through through pretty much gameplay. And so, you know, I, you know, everyone measures gave their success differently. But I got to tell you, that was a that was was a lovely email to get to that someone decided to use a game that they're going to use in their history class. Yeah, very cool. And I've also heard of, of people doing that for their classes for Freedom, the Underground Railroad, the game that you know, kind of simulates uh, the the freeing of the slaves and abolition and, and things like that. And so, it's really cool when you can take. A game, a teacher can take a game, and I am a teacher, so I love using games in the classroom. And you can you can not just play it to have fun, but you can also play it for its its accuracy, right? Whether it's with a scientific game or historical game, that's that's really awesome. Now let's kind of keep traveling down this inspiration road. You mentioned in your in your bio that you were an active duty uh, military guy in the Air Force, an officer in the Air Force. So how has that also kind of helped with your design of these kinds of games? Well, I, you know that's that's an interesting concept because uh, at this time in in our country. Uh, to serve in our country and to wear the cloth, uh, it, it's a voluntary commitment. Nobody forces you to serve. It's something that you get to make that decision. And so um, as we understand uh, 
the importance of that. I think basically, if you look at uh, democracy, and if you maybe just look at um, our great stories, our national narratives, our admirable deeds of our great men and women, um, that really, you know, that really only works, at least as I've seen it on the as an officer in the United States Air Force, if folks understand that history. Um, they understand that uh, we do have people in the past that are worthy of our admiration. And so uh, I think uh, I think there's a deep level of patriotism um, among those that serve as well as those that do not. But I think for me, anyways, I'm trying to get after how do you capture um, that cultural inheritance that we have as Americans or maybe that cultural inheritance that people have that are British. Um, and you can't really capture that if you don't have educated citizenry. Uh, government does not work if they do not understand what they've inherited. And so, you know, I, I think there's messaging in every every game. And I think there's messaging uh, with, with what game designers are, are maybe trying to bring out. And uh, for me, it's really getting after uh, understanding those concepts and trying to, if I can, breathe those into my game design. Yeah. Awesome. First of all, thank you for your service. Thank you for daily, you know, basically laying your life down if, if that's what it asks, you know, what, what the call asks you to do. And so thank you for, for doing that on a daily basis. Uh, so, so that so many other people don't have to, right. You have volunteered so that other people don't have to, uh, kind of travel down these same roads. And so we, you know, as, as a, as just an American, I appreciate uh, your service. And I think it also speaks to something that that's for this context, we're talking about historical and we're talking about, you know, the U S and things like that. But I think just in general, Anytime you love something, anytime you really appreciate and you have a great or a strong appreciation for a topic, I think you're much better at writing a book about it, creating a movie about it, making a game about it. And so I think that also kind of leads you, makes things a little bit easier as, as a designer uh, for you to design these games that do have this historical slant to them because you do appreciate the subject matter so much. And so like, do you have any ideas on that? Or have you ever thought about that? Like, oh man, I really love this stuff. And that, that kind of makes these things easier as opposed to just being some random person thinking, oh, you know, I could, I could make it a story. I could make a game about, you know, the US. I guess that could work versus someone goes, I love these topics. And so, oh, what if I made a game about them? Like that, you see what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, no, it's, uh, it's a, that's a good point. It's like, you know, if, if we're trying to understand history, we're, what we're not trying to do, you know, is we're not trying to get everybody to that same conclusion. We're just trying to give them some knowledge so they can, you know, reach some of their independent judgments on their own of whatever those current issues are. And I think, I think when you do that, you can, you can hopefully help produce people that are maybe more loyal, more intelligent, more cooperative, more better citizens, uh, better, just better, better people, because they have more information to make those decisions on their own. And, uh, you know, I, I also coach soccer. Uh, I, I used to coach girls soccer for a while, uh, been a competitive goalkeeper, uh, division one soccer. And it's interesting because, you know, I could tell my girls at the time, I'd say, you know, go run five laps. And they would look at me like, really coach, really? But, you know, if I put a soccer ball right next to them and I say, you go run those five laps and the first one basically gets out of wind sprints at the end of practice, you better believe that, you know, they're going to love running those five laps with the soccer ball. And so my, I guess my point there is, did you can you infuse it with the fun to where they don't even realize that they're, you're, they're learning a skill set or they're learning something that they didn't know from our historical past, all the while you haven't turned the activity into a drudgery. Yeah, definitely. Now let's talk about the research you did for, for your games. Like, give me, give me kind of your behind the scenes process for researching these different things. Like what sources did you use, you know, Wikipedia <laughs> or different books or different, you, you mentioned Black Sail, the, uh, the, the miniseries, like what else did you use in your research, uh, research? So, yeah. So if you, if you, uh, 
we, we've got basically Cindy Valor. And then so maybe you guys, you might want to Google her. She's known as the, the pirate lady, Cindy Valor. But she was a, she was an early inspiration. And she basically takes it upon herself to write all things about the history of, of, of piracy. And, and she's done that pretty much. I, I don't know how many years she, she's actually done that. But I can tell you that um, she was an inspiration. She was very helpful. And if you look at uh, if you if you look at black sales, if I, if I pull it up, you're going to see that they have a, they had a lot of historical consultants on black sales. And uh, uh, what I did is, uh, you know, I guess sometimes you know courage expands your strengths based on how much risk you're willing to take. Is I just reached out to these folks and I said, hey, would you would you be interested in in helping me um, better understand a little bit about this this time period? Uh, and and so. I'd say that helped out a lot as well, and I'm going to basically give your viewers the uh, uh, the name of that that other uh, member. But he was on Black Sales, and he's got a lot of books that are out there right now. And I'm just trying to pull up the information here as uh, as, as I'm talking. But he basically what he said is he said, "Look, Tom, when you're out here and you're doing this, it, it's really important that you, that your viewers understand that you know these folks they were rebels. They were challenging the time period of of, of conventions like class, like race, like gender." And they had their own form of democracy and equality on how to live. Um, but but just understand that that context. And Benerson Little, he um, if, if your if your audience wants to Google him as well, he's got a lot of books that are out there on the history of piracy. He's he's a resident expert. He's a former Navy SEAL. And uh, basically, he was a, a historical consultant on Star's hit series for black sales. So, you know, why not go to the source? And so. You know, a lot of the, a lot of my time was spent there reading some of his novels and, and reading some of his his information on that time period. And, um, you know, for those viewers that might be a, a little older audience, when I say the names or the words Commodore 64, uh, some folks might cringe me like I have no idea what he's talking about. But there was a game that came out, uh, Sid Meier's Pirates, and I think a lot of folks might uh, recall that game, but uh, spent many a countless hour playing Sid Meier's Pirates. So those, I would say, uh, getting inspiration and getting some historical information from those were pretty much my primary sources. Yeah, awesome. And I, I think, you know, now we live in such exciting times with YouTube and the gazillions of hours of, of content available on YouTube for everything you can possibly imagine, especially for <laughs> historical stuff. And there are so many channels that are devoted to going into some of these like little known facts, little known details, little known, you know, things about the way things used to be They're in every time period you can imagine. And so I feel like if you want to make a historical game, just hop on YouTube and start watching as, as much as you possibly can, as many videos as you can find, uh, along with reading books and watching these series. And like, I love how you just reached out to the, the sources, right? Uh, I feel like so often we, we kind of get a little gunshot, like, oh, I don't know, I don't want to, you know, what if I'm offending them? Or like, No, no, they, they love talking about this stuff. You know, I'm sure they would love an email that says, hey, I'm making a game, hey, I'm writing a book, hey, I'm making a movie, whatever. Can you, can you just give me some, some ideas about this? You know, I'm sure they would love to answer questions about this stuff. It's not like, they're not like famous movie stars that are getting stopped everywhere they go and it's annoying and the paparazzi is following them around. Like I bet these people would love to have somebody say, Hey, I love, I love your work. Can you answer a few questions? I'm sure they'd be open to doing that. Yeah. Uh, you know, every, every, you know, you miss every shot you don't take or whatever the cliches are out there. But uh, you know, I, and I think if, if they're, being true to what their, you know, their why is or their advocacy for that time period, which of course they're trying to bring out uh, the good, bad, and ugly. But uh, of course they're going to want to uh, 
to bring that out, whatever that medium is. And their medium happens to be the historical side and, and, and they leave it up to me to hopefully make a game that's fun mixed in with the history. So both of them have copies of the game. Um, and so they actually, I reached out to them again uh, and a little plug here. We are working on an expansion for the Pirate Republic, uh, an Africa expansion, but uh, that's uh, many moons down the road. But they, uh, I guess that's that's a good litmus test on how well you were able to, to build that uh, build that bench of people that want to help you when they say, yeah, well, I want to be in on the expansion as well. Yeah, very cool. Now let's, let's kind of transition. You know, one of the things I feel like historical games struggle with is really making sure the theme and the mechanisms go hand in hand, right? So it's not just a kind of slapped on theme. Oh, this is a, a, a you know, a drafting game with the art of this history of this historical period, but it doesn't really feel like I'm in that that time period. So like, what, what were your thoughts? What was your process of making sure your game's mechanisms also lined up with the pirate theme or the revolutionary war theme? Yeah. Well, I think there's a lot of phases that people get after game design. Uh, and, and, uh, and it probably give you a long winded answer here, but I think when we all get into game design, uh, and uh, high five, all your game designers are out there, virtual high five, fist bump. We love you guys. I think, uh, you, we all start with this fun stage where, you know, you're just doing this conceptual prototyping, uh, and most of your hobbyists, they just stay here. I, I call it the fun zone. This is the, uh, you know, nobody really cares or wants to buy your idea. But, be, but, but you've, you've created something that you think is fun. And, um, and why doesn't anybody want to buy your idea? Well, you haven't really put a lot of sweat equity in the project. It's still kind of half-baked. And so that's where a lot of, I think, anyone that's done that, they're a game designer. Uh, no, no doubt about it. They're just pretty much at that first level of game design. And, and that's great. But I think that second level is where you go, you know what, now it's time to maybe streamline some of these concepts and, and trim the fat and borrowing. This is where you've been borrowing heavily from maybe other games and other folks that the games that, that you like. But this is where you basically, for most of us, it, it will turn into a failed project. And of course, your definition of failure. But this is where you believe that, you know, you've, you have the best game ever. This is awesome. And but most of us don't. <laughs> and most of us, basically, this is where it's a failed project. And unless you've got some great developers on your team, can you embrace knowing that this is not game ready? We in the military, we call it, can you embrace the suck? Can you really? And, 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 and I think, I think at least my process is this, you know, I go, you know, Tom, or to your game designers out there, ask yourself, you know, do you have 10,000 hours of that deliberate practice? Right now, do you have it in playing games or do you have it in designing games? You know, maybe you have the 10,000 hours in, in playing a game, but right now you probably got like less than eight hours of game design under your belt. I mean, less than for, for a lot of us uh, at that second stage. And, and it's, it's, a, it's depending on your perspective, it's, a, it's overwhelming. But at the same time, it, you, you need to embrace that reality. And, and at that second stage, I call it, you know, we've all, you know, high five yourself because you've completed a game that's not good. Um, versus, you know, not a good game that is not complete. And, and to, to make a game that is not good, that's great. I mean, that's the, that's the second stage. And, 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 I, and I, however fast people can get there, um, do, do so. Uh, and so I, I can keep going on about that. And there's two more stages, at least in my design process. But then, you know, some people call the third stage that, that self-doubt stage. Um, I, I call that where, you know, your game either is going to sink or it's going to float when you bring it out to your play testers. And, and that's where when it goes through this stage, this is really important because this is basically if you've got some Simon Sinek fans out there, 
you're going to really be tested on why you got into game design to begin with. Um, because this is the part you, you mentioned it a little earlier about, you know, how do you build the mechanics to go with the theme? Well, that it, it's in this stage that you do that. And, and, and that process of the play testing, uh, which is uh, very well known to a lot of your listeners, but this is, you know, I, I would say the third stage is probably the most important stage. And that's the stage where you should stay in the most, uh, because that's where you're introducing new mechanisms or you're taking away new mechanisms from the game to see what you got. And, and, and if you're honest with yourself, I mean, uh, you're that, that ecosystem is going to get out of balance. I mean, that's the whole point. It's, it's going to get out of balance because of what you're doing, introducing, not introducing. And then finally, you know, stage four, uh, which both of, uh, these games were able to get to, which is that's where you're going to release the game to the world. And basically, uh, the beauty of you releasing the game to the world is that are you ready for people to pick it apart, throw some rocks at it, um, tell everybody else how terrible your game is on a scale of one to 10. Um, but that's only if you're lucky. So, um, because you know, people, it's great that at least somebody's talking about your game versus they're not talking about it at all. Uh, you know, months and months of nobody really caring that you even made a game. Uh, so that should be, that should be part of the positivity. So, that's my process. Those are the four stages that I go through um, in game design, and, and I and I hope I hope that provides some value to your viewers. Yeah. So when you're really trying to make sure your your theme, you know, pirates or revolutionary war, like really does like the theme really goes hand in hand with the mechanisms. Like, what are you what are you looking for? Like, what are you trying to figure out as far as the experience and what brings that out? Like, walk me just through your process for that specific aspect as far as like marrying theme and mechanics together. Well, I think it comes down to like what type of uh, problem are you trying to solve for the person that's asking you to solve it? And, and, and that's what I ask myself when I'm designing the, the theme with, with the mechanisms is, you know, is this a game where, you know, I maybe it's been called that before is, um, are you making a game for a, that, that you're playing where everyone's going to enjoy it? Or are you making a game where it's maybe for a smaller audience and, and that's okay. Good too. You know, I call it the are you making a good game for a large audience or are you making a great game for a smaller audience? And, and the pirate Republic, I knew going in, I knew right away going in that it was, I was aiming for it to be a great game, but it was going to be a smaller audience. Whereas Patriots and Redcoats, I, I said, you know, I, I'm really more interested in making a good game with a large audience. And, and of course that's, that's subjective, like, just like anything else is, but the pirate Republic, I wanted to incorporate that four time X, 4x uh, part of the game. I thought that was important. I really liked a lot of some of the mechanisms that you find in some of your other games, um, Mage Knight, etc. I thought there was some greatness there. But I even brought back the roll move, the, the roll die and move uh, to to an extent, uh, which seems to be out of date a little bit. But uh, because I did it in a way that you know that you could eliminate some of the input and output randomness. So you know, the, the, that just comes through having good game developers uh, that comes through uh, staying out of your ego. And that comes to really listening to the people that are playing your game, which uh, and 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 hopefully having that resonate when the game's done. Yeah, very cool. All right, let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about prototypes. Tell me about how you put together prototypes for, for your games. I feel like and, and just kind of Correct me if I'm wrong, that games about historical stuff maybe have a little easier in the prototyping stage because there's so much content online that's in the public domain. Well, I mean, there's so many websites that have have art from those periods, you know, have tons and tons of resources that you can just borrow from and, and, and you don't have to give any attribution. You can even use it in the final game because it's in the public domain. And so, like, what did you find in your prototyping 
uh, experience and do you have any kind of tips or tricks for for prototyping a, a historical game yeah um uh, you know to to the audience here i don't know if they want to google him but chris uh let's start with the pirate public if you look at uh, chris collingwood he is a basically one of your old school painters and i reached out to him because he had some amazing pirate art uh that i saw online um and Chris Collingwood, he's a specialized artist. He basically paints using the Dutch oil methods of 1664, which which is a very detailed process. Uh, and if you look at some of the art in the Pirate Republic, the, co- the cover art on the game box, et cetera, it's got Chris's DNA all over it. So maybe instead of not commissioning an artist to do a lot of your work, maybe you go to an artist who that is, is not even in the game design and you try to license some of their artwork that they've already created. Uh, and so I, I think there's some value there in, instead of, because a lot of folks realize that the artwork is going to be um, a majority of your costs when you're making a game. So that was, that was very helpful there. Um, and if you look at uh, Patriots and Redcoats, absolutely, uh, Gabe, exactly as you, as you said it, most of that art is now in the public domain. So you can just Google the public domain and see that uh, I don't have the, 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 details pulled up here, but normally it's over 80 or sometimes 120 years, depending on what you're using, uh, that that art is now in the public domain. Now, obviously, you need to do your due diligence and and credit those artists or credit where you got that art from. But you're exactly right. Um, Very little art was needed for um, Patriots and Redcoats because of that. Yeah, definitely. And I love that idea of, of going out and finding someone who's already made art for that time period and saying, hey, can I just get a license? Can I just pay you for the licensing? That's a whole lot cheaper, or I believe it's a whole lot cheaper, than paying someone to paint a bunch of new stuff or create a bunch of new stuff. You're just saying, hey, you already made it. Can I give you some money for uh, for a license? And you might find that there's some more of your inspiration because if you've, yeah. you know, it, it, you can't half-bake buying a licensing to someone's artwork because now you look at this artwork every single day and you're like, Dag nabbit, I hope my game is as good as this artwork <laughs> because <laughs> this is some beautiful artwork. And so you can use that for positive motivation to, to help with your game design. Yeah, absolutely. I'm actually working on a game right now that uh, it's, it's kind of a dream kind of game. Like you're, it's almost like Inception. Like you're just going through different dream levels and things like that. And I found yeah. an artist online that has p- painted and drawn tons and tons of different uh, eras, right? He's got gangsters. He's got uh, uh, superheroes. He's got grandmas. Like, he's got tons and tons of different things that like would go really well with games uh, for, for for my game. And so I was really thinking about contacting this guy and, and licensing some of his art. But it, the cool thing is the art he's already made has given me ideas for the different directions the, the the material, the content in the game can go. And so that's another way you can get just inspiration from stuff that's already been created and then license it and then kind of travel down that road. Yeah, and I think I think still to your point though, um, you know, a lot of folks uh, will still, even though they now have that art. I mean, I, I think it's a, uh, you know, a lot of folks maybe don't spend that time talking about that graphic designer and, and the importance of that graphic designer. You know, you, you talk a lot about on the podcast. I've heard some of your uh, the folks come on talk about finding the soul of the game and then cutting everything away. Away. Well, you have to have a you have to have a game designer. At least my process. Um, excuse me, a graphic artist, uh, not game designer, graphic artist who can find the soul of the game as well. Uh, and, and, and are you giving them enough of these swim lanes to where that they can, they can successfully swim in those swim lanes and give them the audacity to find the soul of the graphic art and the graphic design. And so uh, I, I find that very value added. Uh, Nick uh, Avalone uh, is based pretty much my, my graphic designer for all for, for these games and the, the upcoming game that we're working on. And he's really good at 
basically, I would just argue, uh, find those relationships, build upon them, and make sure that you, you give them that freedom to find the soul of the graphic art and the graphic design. Yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm whole, totally in 100% agreement with that. One of the main reasons my, my books, my games have, have looked amazing is the art's good, but the graphic designer has done a phenomenal job. Like you say, finding the soul, finding that, that, that just the, the perfect place for the graphic design to live and just bringing the, the game to life. And so, yeah, I definitely agree with you there. All right, let's kind of, let's kind of keep driving down this road. Uh, let's talk about playtesting, right? What are you looking for when you're playtesting these historical games? That, Cause I'm sure you, you want this experience to come out, right? It's not just a game with historical theme. It's a historical game, right? It's this, you know, experience you're trying to, to capture, trying to create. So what are you looking for in the playtesting process to make sure you're on the right path? I think it starts a little bit with, especially if you're a new game designer, you're going to be imitating greatly from other game designers. And that's okay. You're going to be borrowing liberally from them. That's okay. It's human nature to do that. Um, But you're going to be getting some valuable lessons from that, I think, that are going to help you along the way. And so what I tend to do, I think, you know, uh, some people have the philosophy of, hey, you just build this entire huge statue and you just start, you know, chiseling away from the statue and other people like it to where they're building small chunks into their game design as it goes. I tend to be more on the realm of let's throw as much of we can into this game and then slowly start to trim the fat on what doesn't work and what doesn't help with the soul of the game. If you look, uh, you know, there's some some really good uh, folks out there that will actually help you with that process. But, but, and I, I can get into that a little bit. Uh, J.R. Honeycutt, as example, you know, he goes out every now and then with his company and he says, hey, I'll be in your town. If you want to come on out, um, bring your prototypes and I will play them and I will give you some honest feedback. And so I think that's huge. I think your proto spiels are great opportunities to get some of the, uh, the feedback that you're looking for. And I think it's for me, the game design, you know, I look at it. Uh, I really do, Gabe, as I, I look at it more as like this huge ecosystem, this kind of systems and networks, you know, the military, it's all about. You know, to defeat an enemy, you have to understand their network. Uh, you have to understand how that network operates. You have to understand their ecosystem. And so, you know, there was this great YouTube about how wolves were reintroduced in the Yellowstone. Uh, and, and then what, what did that do? What did that do to the ecosystem? And, and to borrow from the game, you know, it basically deer ended up staying in places where they couldn't be ambushed. So, you know, they ended up uh, getting out of the gullies and streams. Then thicker vegetation grows in those streams for the fish, then, you know, the birds of prey multiply, the, the fish populations increase and the wolves start to control the deer population, which basically allows more trees to grow. And the adult trees thereby increase the bird species who now call the park home. And all that, all those little ripples that you've made in your game design, uh, similar to reintroducing the wolves in the Yellowstone, produce an entire new ecosystem. So I think what you, you're trying to do, once you get it to a level where you slap the table and you say, I got this delicate ecosystem, it's ready. It's probably not ready because now you're going to be start setting it out of balance here and there and dealing with the chaos of when it goes out of balance. Uh, and so for me, I, I, you know, I, I get it to a point where, where I feel like it's, a, it's an ecosystem that can stand on its own. Yeah, very cool. So what do your notes look like? Like when you're watching some, you know, people play your game and you're trying to make sure that historical experience is coming out, like what are you looking for? Like what more specifically are you, are you trying to see just to, to make sure, are you, is it, you know, where players are talking to each other about the historical stuff going on or like, what, what are you, what are you saying? Yeah. Well, you know, for Patriots and Redcoats, it, it really, it, it really was on those spy cards, um, the spy craft cards. So uh, it, that, that really resonated the theme 
folks that are really heavy in the rule books, we have an entire section in the back of the rule book that talks a little bit about uh, those characters. But for the game, I mean, make no mistake about it. Your, your number one, I guess, part that you're trying to achieve first is, was the game fun? Great. Uh, is there a way to make the game more fun? Okay, great. Now, how do I combine that with the history piece? Well, if the game's fun, I mean, like you said, you don't want to just paste on a, a new theme because now folks go back to now they're just feeling like they're learning a history lesson. But for me, you know, I start with, well, was the game fun? Yep. Okay. Well, the game was fun. Well, does this mechanic make the game even more fun or does it make it less fun? So how well can you make, for example, spies and spy craft during the Revolutionary War actually do the things that they would do during that time period? Like, unfortunately, assassinate people. So uh, you get the idea of what a spy, the importance of what a spy does. I mean, if you look at if you look in the newspapers when I was researching the game, you know, it was a very famous quote that said George Washington really never won any of the battles against the British. He simply outspied us. And so the whole part of that game, uh, the whole part that we were trying to capture was making sure that that spycraft phase um, resonated with the gamers. And they understood that, you know, whoever had that spycraft card, that was the soul, part of the soul of the game. So that, that's, um, it was really built around that whole concept. And, and, and that's what helped with the playtesting. Yeah, very cool. And I, I love the idea, you know, you figure out what is the heart of the game as far as this historical thing that, that you got going on, and then make sure that the playtesters are enjoying that part. And if they're not, well, how can you tweak it or do you need to change it or, or maybe take it out and try something different? And so, yeah, I think that's a really good good way to look at it. It's like, okay, this historical thing that's happening, I want that to be the meat of the game. So how do I make sure it is the meat of the game? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and, you know, you're, you're talking about the historical games a little bit. Um, you know, when I was doing just some general research on, on history of board games, I, maybe some of your viewers all already know this, but, uh, you know, the precursor, I guess you could call it to Monopoly, was the Landlord game. Yeah. And uh, Maggie in 1904, who basically built the game, her whole messaging was, I want to show people that rent enriches property owners and it impoverishes the tenants. That was her whole point of making the game. Mm -hmm. She was trying to basically say renting is bad. And, uh, well, you know, the rest is kind of history because the Parker brothers brought it, uh, bought it and the rest has been history. And so that, that capitalism over showing that the rent is bad, uh, kind of won the day, but there was messaging in the game and there was a historical perspective to her, her game design. And, and I think there's so many times that if you look at your game designers, you know, when they're looking for that inspiration, sometimes it pops and pops out in the face. And sometimes it's, maybe they are trying to message something in their game. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, Tom, man, really appreciate your time. Appreciate you coming on the show. Do you have any kind of closing thoughts, closing advice for somebody? What would you tell somebody who's working on a historical game right now? Yeah, well, you know, I would tell them is, you know, what is the problem you're trying to get after? And if you understand, like, what your why is of game design, uh, you know, I, I really believe part of the meaning, you got to find what your meaning of life is, uh, find that gift, and then just give that gift away. Uh, and that's the game design part. And so as you're working on this game, just know that we've been through all those four phases. Um, but are you enriching somebody's life? Uh, so find that joy, find that pure buzz and thing and, and do it for the joy. And if you're doing it for that, you're going to do it forever. But just realize that people are buying your game, in my opinion, because you're solving one of their problems. And, and I think a lot of times we lose track of, of, of why people uh, play games because there's, there's some type of problem that you're providing a cure for, whether that's boredom, whether that's anxiety, that's loneliness, that's companionship, uh, or just, just social interaction. 
Um, we, we want that, uh, especially in this day and age. So as you're, as you're getting after that get game design, just realize that you're solving or you're helping uh, enrich somebody's life. And, 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 but as long as you can keep it fun. So I hope that helps a little bit. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Tom, you got a game on Kickstarter right now. Take a couple minutes and tell me about it. Yeah. So uh, basically talking about the history part there, uh, you know, basically if you look at the problem that I see right now is, you know, after, after, if you look at Patriots and Redcoats, if I don't know if I can give you, if it's okay to give you a little bit of context first before yeah, sure. I go into that. So um, if you look at Patriots and Redcoats, in, in one sense, I mean, you could basically say, well, you know, compared to your, the, the first game, Tom, that you funded, it, it didn't do it as well. And it, it really didn't um, as far as the financial piece, because Patriots, uh, the Pirate Public basically did, did very well. Whereas you look at uh, Patriots and Redcoats, at least on the number of backers, it didn't do so well. Um, and so, you know, going back to the drawing board, you know, if you look at also what what's the soul of your of your company, and and if you look at and if you understand what the soul of your company is, then you understand that the soul of your game design. A lot of people said, Tom, you should stop with the historical games because, you know what, um, people don't want to people don't want to know more about their history. Or they don't want to learn things about their history. They they would rather basically play games that that uh, that are not historical. And I got a lot of uh, a feedback on that. And so, you know, I took some of that feedback and I said, well, can you come out with a game, or can you do something where it still holds on to a historical theme, but it's also still fantasy? And so I know that's a long-winded way to get after what I'm trying to say is. Uh, the game is called Paradise Lost, and you know how many gamers want to find uh, a way that they can enjoy the hobby, say, with their family and friends that are new to gaming, yet still be challenged themselves? Well, that's really what Paradise Lost is trying to do. It's a gateway family game that can be enjoyed by new and seasoned gamers. It pretty much takes that whodunit genre away from your murder mystery detective themes and it moves it into fantasy fiction using timeless fables of our literature. So if you want to be Perseus, you want to be Beowulf, you want to be Hercules, Billy Goat Gruff, Alice, you're ultimately trying, Alice in Wonderland, you're ultimately trying to restore hope to a world that's in deep despair in this fantasy-themed deduction game. It's got some sprinkles of point-to-point movement, some resource management, and some worker placement. I'd say people that like Cryptid, Clue, Takedo, or Tobago would hopefully like to give it a try. It's about for two to five players and plays at about 15 minutes per player, and um it basically takes all of our historical stories or our fables from the time and puts them in a game, remaining true to that history being one of the parts of, of, of this company that we want to keep on to. Yeah, very cool, man. That sounds that sounds fun. Sounds very interesting, and I look uh, forward to, to checking it out. Uh, but, Tom, again, really appreciate you coming on the show, and uh, good luck with your Kickstarter, good luck with your company, and everything else you got going on right now. Really appreciate it, Gabe. Glad to be here. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?